Now, as I said last week, Luke has ordered his gospel in an orderly and straightforward way. And one of the things that we see as he organizes his material is the parallel announcements, first of the birth of John the Baptist, John the Immerser, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. In both instances, we see the angel Gabriel is sent. In both instances, one of the parents is spoken to. In both instances, the parent has a question. In both instances, a sign is given, and a work of the Spirit from the womb is, is promised for the child. The first is said to be great before the Lord, John the Baptist. We see this morning that Jesus will just be great, period, full stop. And as we study the announcement, what what Luke is establishing, again, is is, his purpose in writing, his stated purpose in writing, is to grant certainty to Theophilus concerning the things that he has been taught. We see that again in in chapter 1, verse 4. He's writing that you may have certainty. And so Theophilus has heard the account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we assume. And and this account is written to grant that level of certainty. We as well have heard and been taught these things. And as we study this morning, this passage, I just pray the Lord will give us a greater certainty. The passage follows um, three parts. The first is we get an unlikely setting in verses 26 to 27. The body of the passage is in verse 28 to 37, where we see the angelic announcement, the actual what is spoken by Gabriel to Mary. And then finally, in verse 38, a faithful response. So let's dive in, looking at this second birth announcement, the birth announcement of our Lord Jesus Christ, by looking at the unlikely setting. And Luke links this account with what we studied last week by the way he opens verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Well, the sixth month of what? Well, we find out, if you look all the way down in verse 36, that it's the sixth month after his previous encounter with Zechariah. The angel tells Mary um, in verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So we're to know that this account takes place six months after the previous account. And as we looked last week, part of the reason why the word had not gotten out about Elizabeth's pregnancy is that she herself hid herself away, and her husband was struck mute. And so God had done a miracle in granting conception to Elizabeth in her old age, but that had not gotten out very much. So Gabriel appears to Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth, and he makes this announcement to her. And first, Luke gives us the setting. He gives us the time, six months later. The place is Nazareth of Galilee, and it's a very small and unlikely place. Nazareth is, is a very small community. Um, it is a place of ignominy, so much so that in John's Gospel, um, when Nathaniel is told that Jesus um, is the Messiah, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we're to be struck the contrast, first the encounter taking place in the temple with Zechariah, and now we're in this tiny little backwater town of Nazareth, and we find a young woman named Mary. So the time, six months later, the place, Nazareth of Galilee, the person, Mary, Joseph's betrothed. So Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So we've got a young woman, probably in her teens, late teens, 
betrothed, which is a, a, a Jewish formal, it's, it's probably stronger, well, not probably, it is stronger than our understanding of engagement. Betrothal, to the Jewish mind, took a covenant to enter into, took a, a divorce to end. In Matthew's Gospel, we learn um, when Joseph found out about the pregnancy before he learned about the child's supernatural and divine origin. In Matthew 1, 18-19, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, notice he's referred to as her husband here, even though they're betrothed, sought to, um, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So she's engaged in a Jewish betrothal, which is a lot stronger binding than our understanding of engagement. She's promised in, in, in a covenant with Joseph. They haven't come together, but she's engaged to him. And this angel appears to her, which um, is, is unusual and causes her great alarm. So the setting is six months after the previous encounter, the place, this backwater town of, of Nazareth in Galilee, and the person, Mary, um, a betrothed woman to a man. And, and what we learn, and what's interesting, is Joseph's descent from David, of the house of David. That's going to be important a little bit later when Gabriel explains the significance and the function and role of this child that she will bear. So we go from the setting to the announcement itself, and we pick that up in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now this greeting um, gets taken a lot by, by the Roman Catholic Church, especially in Jerome's translation. And you've probably heard Hail Mary, full of grace, as a common expression. It's not a terribly good translation. Gabriel's greeting, the Lord is with you, makes it clear, and here's your blank, that Mary is an object of grace. Mary is an object of grace. Twice, what the ESV translates as favored one in verse 28 and in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The expression literally is graced one, one who has been graced. And so when the angel greets Mary, he makes it clear not that she is a wellspring of grace, as is taught in the Roman Catholic Church, but rather she is a recipient. She is an object of grace. This is one whom God has poured his grace upon. And so the danger for us on the one side is to elevate Mary as someone to worship, someone to homage, which we should not do. And yet Gabriel makes it clear she is a recipient of grace. She is a recipient of the Lord's favor, an object of his grace. And he speaks to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What he announces to her is that not only is she a recipient and an object of grace, but that God is with her. God is, is going to work for and with her. Now her response, point two, is she demonstrates true humility. She demonstrates true humility. She's troubled, not as appearing, which we would understand, but she's troubled at what he actually has to say. Mary does not assume that she deserves God's grace. Mary does not assume that she is anyone in particular. And so when she hears that she is a recipient of grace, when she hears that God is with her, it says she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She, she's humbled by this. And so the angel Gabriel appears to her, announces to her that she is an object of God's favor, object of God's grace, 
announces the Lord is with her. Her response is humility. She responds being troubled, trying to discern what to make of this greeting, which then leads to Gabriel's prediction in verses 30 to 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Gabriel makes this great announcement to her. First, he announces the Lord is with her. Now he announces to this woman that we've been told twice is a virgin, in verse 27, that she will conceive a child and call his name Jesus. Gabriel's prediction. You can imagine the shock, the, the further confusion. If Mary is troubled by the initial statement of, of Gabriel, we can only imagine how this new announcement would, would shake her world. As she's told that she will conceive a son and call his name Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh or the Lord saves. He says, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive in your room and bear a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel's prediction, you will bear a son named Jesus. And then he goes on to describe, the, just as in the previous encounter, he, he announced to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and bear a son, and then what the ministry, what the function of that child would be. The same pattern is followed here. After announcing that Mary will conceive, he begins to describe the, the role and the function of this, this child that she will bear. And we learn two things. First, that he'll be great and called the Son of the Most High. And second, that he'll receive and reign from David's throne forever. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. Now here the contrast between himself and John the Baptist is, is evidenced, and we see the superiority of Jesus. Whereas John the Baptist will be great before the Lord, Gabriel here declares that Jesus will be great, not just before the Lord, but in every sense. This child is greater. Luke is making it clear to Theophilus, and Luke is making it clear to us that as great as John the Baptist is, the one who is being announced here is greater still. Greater still. He is great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And that phrase, Son of the Most High, or calling God the Most High, is a, is a title for the living God that goes back and is first used of Melchizedek in Genesis 14.18, where he is a priest of God Most High, the Most High God. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. In comparison, if you look a little further in chapter 1, John the Baptist, in um, chapter Luke 1, verse 76, will be a prophet of the Most High. Here, this child that Mary will bear will be called the Son of the Most High. And we understand then that this child that she is going to be bearing is going to be the very son of God. Now, the, the, the Jewish concept of sonship has, has more in view um, function, functional sonship than, than a genetic descent. Um, by being a son of the Most High, this one that she will bear will, will bear the character, will bear the, the um, power, the function in many respects of God. The, the child that she bears will be the son of God the Son of the Most High. And we learn, and this is the, the, the big news, he will be receiving 
the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the long-awaited son of David. Turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel, because what we need to do is to go back and, and see the Jewish expectation. If you're in, in Dave Lample's Sunday school class, in a few weeks, I'm sure you will get to this, but this, this is, my water is not there. Um, this is the fulfillment of a, of a covenant promise that occurred centuries, centuries before. Now, if you remember, King David um, was anointed by God to be king, and, and David wants to make God a house. He wants to make a house for God. And Nathan comes to him and tells him, no, David, you're not going to make a house for God. God is actually going to make a house for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, we read Nathan speaking to David on behalf of the Lord. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And that same play on words that occurs in English, a house as a building and a house as a dynasty, works in, in Hebrew as well. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, most immediately, this refers to Solomon. Solomon is David's son, who will, in fact, build the house of the Lord, the temple. But as we keep reading, it becomes clear that what God is promising to David in this, in this covenant must go beyond Solomon. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Thank you, Greg. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God makes a promise to David. David wants to build a house for God. And God responds by saying, no, David, actually, I'm going to make a house for you. I will establish your descendants. And most immediately, speaking of Solomon, he predicts that Solomon will build a house of the Lord for for David and for Israel. But then he makes these statements that this, this dynasty that starts with Solomon will continue. Now turn from here to, to Psalm 2. It's not entirely clear from 2 Samuel just how that dynasty will continue indefinitely. There's, there's two ways, I suppose. One, um, Solomon can have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son, world without end. Or... And this is where Psalm 2 picks up this thread and develops it further. Eventually, you can have a Davidic son whose reign lasts forever. And, that, and that's the concept of Psalm 2, using the language of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. Let's just read all of Psalm 2. It's, it's short enough. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, or rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now there's the clear use of the language from 2 Samuel. I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And what Psalm 2 does is it unites a number of Old Testament threads. It unites this, this promise to King David of a, of a dynasty, of a descendant, with anointed in verse 2, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah or Christ, and this notion of sonship. And so we learned that there is coming a Davidite, there is coming a descendant of David who will, who will be the Lord's anointed, he'll be the Lord's Messiah or Christ, and this special Davidite will rule in, in, in a level that goes far beyond anything David experienced. He will rule, according to here, all the nations and break them with a rod of iron. The ends of the earth will be his possession. And so this, this promise of a coming Messiah, of a coming son of David is, is expected. This is who Israel's looking for. And now, back in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel has just announced to Mary that the child that she will conceive, the child that she will bear and, and call Jesus, is this, in fact, this coming Davidite, this coming descendant of David who will rule on David's throne. This is, this is tremendous news. This is what Luke is trying to establish for us, making absolute certain as we go forward in Luke's gospel. Who is this Jesus? Well, the first thing we learn about this Jesus is this Jesus is the, is the Son of the Most High. He is great, and He is the one who will receive the throne of His father David, and the reign of His rule and His kingdom will endure forever. That, that's who this one is. Greater than John the Baptist, this son of David, this Jesus, will reign from David's throne forever. Amazing news. Amazing news to Mary. So the angel makes this prediction, you'll bear a son, announces to her, this is the one who's been waited for. This is the descendant of David. Mary's responds with a question, how can this be since I'm a virgin? An understandable question, reasonable enough. So Gabriel then moves on, point C here, verses 34 to 37, to explain. And and basically the summary of his explanation comes at the end in verse 37, that nothing is impossible with God. How can Mary conceive and bear this son since she is a virgin? Well, the angel's answer is this. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, Gabriel says it two different ways, explaining how this this virgin woman will conceive a son. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And there's an inscrutable and miraculous act here. Just as the Spirit of God grants life to us spiritually, the the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, would come upon Mary and grant life and conception in her womb, the virgin birth. 
Um, this is a child who would have a human mother and a supernatural parentage as regards to the father. The Holy Spirit coming upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And what Gabriel draws our attention to, because there's a sense in which we can't explain this. There's a sense in which we, we don't understand how this works, where, where, how, how this happened. What Gabriel draws our attention to is the conclusion, the implications. Because this is so, because the Holy Spirit would, would inscrutably and mysteriously grant conception, the child is holy, and the child will be the Son of God. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now that phrase, holy, that, that we generally only use in, in Christian circles, simply means set apart. It's a phrase used for something set apart. Now, depending on what context of being set apart, holy can have the context of moral holiness or purity. But it's set apart so that the, the tongs used to move the coals about in the, in the altar in the temple are holy to the Lord. It doesn't mean they're morally Pure just means they're, they're set apart for that purpose only. Because this child will be conceived in this way, he will be set apart wholly and totally for the Lord's use. Now, we saw that last week that John the Baptist was set apart. He, he's set apart from drinking alcohol from his mother's womb. From the womb, he's receiving the Holy Spirit. Here, again, Luke ramping up the significance of this child. This child actually is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this child is holy. This child is set apart. This child is other than all others who have come before him or come after him. And this child is the son of God. Now that that is a very pregnant title, pardon the pun, the son of God, because it can be used in a number of ways. If you you turn over to Luke chapter 2, in Luke chapter 2, Luke uses that phrase son of God in a a, a very sort of... uh, Low sense, speaking of Adam, the genealogy in um, Luke chapter 2. Nope, sorry, Luke chapter 3, sorry. Uh, Psalm 2, Luke chapter 3, I'm sorry. And as he ends chapter 3, he gives the genealogy of Jesus. And we will skip over some of these difficult names to the end. To verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now there that phrase, son of God, is used simply as one made by God. The angels are called sons of God. And yet in Luke's gospel, this title, son of God, will ultimately, if you turn over now to Chapter 22 of Luke, he understood clearly as a claim to deity. So perhaps not this early in, in Luke chapter 1 is, is it that clear, but by the time we get to the end of Luke's gospel, it'll be clear that what Luke means by Son of God is nothing other than God himself, God incarnate, God in the flesh. In Luke 22, verses 69 to 71, Jesus is, is being tried. In verse 66, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And 
If I ask you, you will not answer, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? There's the question, are you the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So ultimately, this this acceptance of this title of Son of God is what they will use as the clincher in their lynching and murder of Jesus. The angel Gabriel here announcing to Mary that this child that she bears will be conceived by the Spirit. Consequently, this child will be a holy child, a set-apart child. This child is, in fact, the very Son of God. And as we read through Luke's Gospel, we will understand that what Luke means by Son of God is nothing other than divine, is deity. This child is God in the flesh. And just as the, the promise to Zechariah contained with it a guarantee, a sign, so the angel points to a sign for Mary, the confirming pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 36, Gabriel says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now we noted last week that Zechariah's question evidenced some unbelief. He, he wanted, how can I know? Mary's question is simply, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And so even though she did not ask for a sign, Gabriel gives her one, and he points to the pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth and gives us the, the, the application here that nothing is impossible with God. Just as God did a great and mighty sign by granting a pregnancy to a barren old woman, a greater miracle, a greater sign is done here as a virgin conceives a son who will be none other than the Son of God. None other than the Son of God. And then the passage closes with Mary's faithful response. Now again, because of the way that the Roman Catholic Church makes such elevates Mary to such a status at times calling her the co-redemptrix, we can, we can sometimes counterbalance that and try to make too little of her. But I think she's put forward here as an extreme model of faith and humility. She's an object of grace. She's not the fountain of grace. But she evidences faith. Her response here is, is truly amazing. I mean, she's just been told that she is going to, even though she's engaged to a man, she's going to go through the public shame of, of unwed pregnancy, which, according to Deuteronomy 22, was punishable by death. Listen to Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of, to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And we know from Matthew's account that her, her um, betrothed husband, Joseph, very nearly divorced her. She's, her, her life's going to be turned upside down. And her response is one of faith. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And I just want to draw our attention quickly to two things. First, Mary recognizes her relationship with the Lord. Mary recognizes her relationship with the Lord. Rather than viewing herself as, as some co-redemptrix, as some elevated person, what we've seen is actually Mary's humility. Mary's an object of grace. Mary is troubled by the angel coming to her. And here she identifies herself as the Lord's servant, literally slave. 
She understands herself rightly as God's subject and servant. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus will teach in chapter 17, verse 10, to his disciples that even after they've done all that has been commanded of them, he says, once you have done all that you've been commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And Mary here is the Lord's servant. She recognizes her relationship to the Lord, one of his creatures, one of his subjects, one honored by grace and favor, yet nonetheless, one of his subjects, one of his servants, one of his slaves. She recognizes her relationship with the Lord, and she submits herself to God's plan. She submits herself to God's plan. She submits. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm sure Mary doesn't fully understand how this is going to work out. I'm sure she had many questions in her mind. I'm sure if she was troubled by the initial announcement by the angel, her, her, her world is rocked even more by what she has heard. And here her response is one of humble and obedient faith. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. You know, Luke's gospel is going to end with a similar attitude of submission. Mary's own son in the garden in Luke twenty-two forty-two, would pray, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's interesting that Mary evidences the same type of submission, the same type of acceptance of God's will. And she's a model of faith. She's a model of faith. She is, she is a fellow recipient of grace like us, and she is a great model of faith. Luke, in this passage, has, has made it clear who we are to expect and who we are to understand the Lord Jesus to be. He's more than a great man. He's more than a great teacher. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. And ultimately, in Luke's gospel, he will die on the cross for our sins. And as we now move into a time of communion and, and remembering that, I'm going to call the, the ushers forward. Um, be my prayer that the Lord would give us the same type of obedient and humble faith that Mary evidenced. The Lord would, would grant to us the same type of acceptance attitude. Luke's gospel begins with, with Jesus' mother saying, not my will but yours be done. Luke's with Jesus' mother saying, let it be according to me, according to your word. And Jesus, even in Luke's gospel, praying that the cup might pass accepts God's will. And I pray that the Lord would grant us that type of attitude as well. So as we prepare for communion, let's, let's pray as I call the men forward. Lord God, in your time, in your plan, according to your purposes, you have brought forward your Son at the right time. And through means inscrutable and miraculous, you, you caused a virgin to conceive, and you sent your angel to announce the coming of the son of David, the king of kings. And Lord, we know that he ultimately went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins, and that because of his death, we can live. And so, Lord, as we now turn our hearts and our minds to remembering his death and his resurrection, we pray that you would help us to do that appropriately and soberly. In Jesus' name.
Amen.